Happy APAM, everybody. It is May, and it is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And so we're going to be doing a lot of celebrating of us for the next few weeks, definitely through May. Although we should really be celebrating each other every single day, because it is great to be Asian American and to be also celebrating our Pacific Islander friends and to acknowledge and to celebrate and to pay homage to those who have come before us so that those who come after us can have perhaps an easier time achieving their goals and dreams and making this world a better place. My name is Jerry Wan, your host of The Asian Americans, and I thank you for joining us today on this very special episode. Today, I am honored to be joined by Justin Zhu, who is Executive Director of Stand With Asian Americans. And together, we are going to be bringing you some amazing stories for the next 10 Tuesdays. And so stay tuned. Make sure that you are subscribed, whether you are listening on Apple or Spotify or wherever you are listening to us. I am really grateful to our team and friends at Stand With Asian Americans uh, who believe in the power of Asian American storytelling as we do here on Dear Asian Americans and are uh, working together with us to co-create the next 10 episodes on Tuesdays together. Uh, we'll hear from Justin. And next week, we'll hear from our friend Jenny Wang, who is an amazing uh, human being and psychologist. And we'll hear from different members of our community to uh, help us really understand what to make of what has been going on and what we can do to help really advance our community going forward. And so uh, check out what Stand With Asian Americans are doing. Uh, they've been amazing uh, the last few months as of late, uh, particularly rather uh, in organizing both in-person events digital events, um, all sorts of events to really bring together people and communities uh, from coast to coast. And so you can learn more about the work that they are doing at StandWithAsianAmericans.com and social media everywhere at StandWithAsianAmericans. Big thank you to Brian Peng, to Wendy Wynn, and to Diana Surya Kusuma, for all your help behind the scenes in making this possible. So without further ado, here now is my conversation with Justin Zhu. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Asian Americans and happy APAM, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. I know different groups call it different things, but we'll call it APAM for simplicity's sake because that's what our federal government has decided to call it. And so we are celebrating all through May. Um, and as you know, as you heard in the opener, we are celebrating Asian American excellence and activism and the people that make our community wonderful, particularly in light of the challenges that we've had in the couple of years. And so this begins the 10 episode series that we are doing in partnership with Stand With Asian Americans. And we are kicking that off today with an amazing conversation with its co-founder and executive director, my wonderful friend, Justin Zhu, who will share with his story about a career before activism in technology and how he ended up doing what he's doing and what his vision is and how he wants us as a community to fight for what we believe in and so that we can both literally and metaphorically stand up for one another, stand up for each other. And so without further ado, Justin, welcome to the Asian Americans. Thank you for having me, Jerry. Happy Asian Heritage Month. Happy. And we get, you know, at least we get a 31-day month. You know, the government was nice enough to do that. But for folks who know a little bit of the history, we only got a week to begin with, actually. And so we got a week, which we, the government actually, it wasn't forever. And so politicians had to reapply for it every year to have our, our celebration. It was actually the week between the completion of the Chinese railroad and the first known Japanese immigration. And so now it's permanent. We get a month. It's a long month. It's my birthday month. It's awesome. We wish we had longer, but you know, we, we wake up Asian every day. And so that's what we want to talk about and sort of how you came to be the Justin that you know, that we know as the face and the voice of Stand With Asian Americans, or as we like to call it amongst friends, SWA. And so first of all, very grateful for your support of the show and for your intentions on elevating voices in our community that I think sometimes get elevated, often not enough. And so we're really excited to work together for the next 10 weeks to bring voices up to light, to help us get a really good understanding of how Justin came to be. And so you took a circuitous route to California 
through Canada, through Pennsylvania, and all the way here, as we know you as a tech person now or previous to this most recent chapter. But tell us about how Justin came to America, then tell us about your family and your earlier years. Yeah, happy to share. And so going into my personal story, I was born in Shanghai, China, where I spent the first eight years of my life. And uh, for me, that was a place of deep belonging. Uh, I my fondest memories were doing were during Lunar New Year, where uh, I would visit dozens and dozens of family members and and you know, many dinners and fireworks, and I just felt that deep belonging. Um, and as I got older, um, my mother started wanting to leave the country um, for a variety of reasons. Um, Historically, uh, my uh, ancestors, uh, my great grandfather, um, he was a Chinese medicine doctor um, and he had a Chinese medicine shop. Um, and during the Cultural Revolution, uh, he was persecuted for having uh, a shop, uh, even though he was a healer and providing services to the people. And that created a lot of trauma uh, in my family. Um, and uh, on my mother's side, um, they they fought for um, the, the the party in China, and so you know we we had a quite a uh, I would say a family history. And as I got older, my mom really wanted to leave the country, and so um, she first went to Canada for by herself for a year and a half. Um, and I think at that point, my dad realized that she really wanted to leave the country uh, and took took me over there. Uh, but the sacrifice my dad made was that he started one of the first computer stores in Shanghai. And uh, it was his life's work, uh, worked on it for many years, had dozens of employees, and uh, he had to shut that down. And I remember when he did that, you know, our, our home was filled with computers and like, you know, printer and, and you know, he had to let all that go. And so he went from um, running a computer shop to then when we immigrated to first Toronto, Canada, working at McDonald's because his English wasn't good enough to um, get a, get a job. Uh, and, and then, so we went from deep belonging, tons of family to then just uh, my parents and myself. And I'm also a product of the one shop policy uh, in China. And so it was harder also as an immigrant here to, uh, for my, for my family to, to have more kids. Um, and so Toronto is where I've spent the first couple of years of uh, leaving the country. And that's where also I learned my first English phrase, which was, I'm going to tell the teacher. Uh, and that was because I was being bullied um, in, uh, in school, uh, in class, uh, at recess, and on the way home. I remember there was this just one moment where this kid just wouldn't stop following me. Um, and it was, it was this alley on the way home. And I just remember someone said that phrase and I blurted it out and, and work and, and he left. And so, uh, and so that's, so that's kind of been my experience is a very like 180. And ever since that period, um, I mean, most of the places I've been, there were fewer, fewer Asians. Um, I moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia afterwards um, uh, and went to high school there um, and then stayed on the East coast to study computer science. And after college, started at Twitter as my first job when they were actually starting um, a couple hundred people. You know, there's a lot of actually um, news around Twitter at these days. And I remember, uh, yeah, when I joined, I was actually supposed to start the week that Snoop Dogg came over with his posse and started DJing, litting up, you know, massive joints around the company. And it happened to be the day that there was a leadership offsite. So there were no leaders at the company. It was all like individual employees. And so... Um, so that was quite a time. Um, and um, uh, so Twitter was my first experience in Silicon Valley um, in understanding technology, understanding just, uh, say, social media and kind of the future of how um, our um, views of the world and what drives us is being influenced. Uh, and spent two years there um, and realized that um, um, there was really a need to to have this kind of technology to tell your story um, for for every company, for every person, because in, in this day and age, uh, if you have great sales and marketing, you can have a subpar product or even a fake product and really still succeed in, in a typical sort of making money way. But 
um, that also makes it very difficult for others who, who are really creating great services and products to survive. And so that's what led me to build my, my company and co-found Iterable, which is a uh, marketing technology platform that powers the messages you see from um, DoorDash, um, Zillow, Square, many of these uh, sort of top uh, consumer companies and emerging companies that you see today. I'll pause there. I, I want to go back a little bit because I, I think there's so much, I don't know what the right word is. I, I, I think it's wonderful um, and almost makes sense that understanding what your family went through and knowing what you are today, which is, you know, technologist turned activist, right? And those things run through your blood in different ways. I wonder how much of your desire to study technology came from what you had learned either directly or just being in the room as your father was running his computer store. And, and was there a part of sort of wanting to finish what he had started by going into that field? You know, I mean, we we often joke one of the things that we are expected to go into is engineering and you know, where you went to school in Pittsburgh at Carnegie is one of, it's a household name in many Asian households, as far as, you know, that's where you go if you want to study engineering. How much of that was guided by, you know, sort of what your family had gone through and, and wanting to finish what your dad started? Yeah, looking back, a big part of it was, especially seeing the struggles my father went through um, after first couple of years of working in sort of um, McDonald's and, and not being able to find a job, he ended up coming to the U.S. Um, first um, and got a job at a computer store. Uh, and so he was an, he became an employee uh, and was, you know, essentially doing many, many roles, working crazy amounts of hours because um, the shop would sponsor his visa. And he mm -hmm. was getting paid a fraction of what he deserved, right? But he did it for many, many years so that um, my family and I can, can get a green card. We're very fortunate to, to do so. Um, and I, I, I definitely saw the desire for him to, to, to build another company. Um, but now he's, he's in his sixties and, um, at least a computer company at that sort of time has passed in, in some ways, but you know, that desire, um, translated to me and feeling, Hey, take that out. I'll do a company and, you know, and, and, um, we can, we can keep running it, right. The company will, will continue. And like, you know, with our great grandfather, right, with the company taken away or with your company where you had to shut it down for us to come for the American dream, you know, let me do a company. Um, and so looking back, there was that desire. And, and growing up in, in, in Shanghai, my, my dream was never to come to Silicon Valley or do a company. And I think those are not dreams that a typical child in, in China could have. Um, and it's only after coming here and seeing what happened to, to my father, to my mom, to, to, to our life here that really kind of influenced me this way. Um, when I first went into college, my major, the major I want to get into was biomedical engineering. And, mm -hmm. and that was influenced by my great grandfather in Chinese medicine. And by realizing that um, that field was sort of moving pretty slowly, I transitioned to computer science. Um, and, and so... Yeah, so I think looking back, a lot of what drives us is from our childhood experiences, whether directly or passed down from our ancestors. We, we often think about the sacrifices that our ancestors made, our parents or grandparents, obviously, in, in our most recent memories, and, and knowing that perhaps they were not able to do what they wanted to do, and they made sacrifices so that we could. And again, I, I don't think, you know, this is not to say that, like, we all should, you know, live out our parents' dreams, right? Because there's a lot of potential toxicity in that and talking about a lot of people, a lot of students or a lot of our friends, rather, younger folks uh, resent when their parents tell them to do something. But it seems like it, it made a little bit of sense for you. Why technology and why social technology? Because looking back at it now, you know, almost 10 years after you began your journey at Twitter, everything about your story, though it's not finished, makes a little bit of sense that you are using what you know to build community, to build a movement and to bring people together and to tell stories of our community and to get more people engaged and activated. Did they pay the most? Was it the most exciting startup? I mean, you just joined when it was 300, which on the scale of things, it's still relatively new, knowing how big they are today. What eventually made you want to switch to software and then go into the social side of the business? Yeah, in, in college, switching to computer science, um, I felt that it 
it had the most potential for change and, and going into why I, I chose what I did or uh, my major was how do I create impact in this world? And, and that's been um, kind of the root, root motivation. Um, with Twitter, uh, I, I had options to join many tech companies and she went on interview, they were, they only had a hundred something employees. So it was very early days. Um, it, it didn't feel like really kind of a company, like a corporate company it felt like more of like a shared space where people were coming with a lot of ideas and a lot of creativity. Um, some of what attracted me was just sort of the freedom to express ideas and sort of, um, I think some of what we see actually um, today, and certainly when we were um, in, in the early years that I was on Twitter, was the ability to actually express um, truths in, 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 a, in a time of great oppression. And so one of the um, first memories that I have that, that were significant was um, shortly after I joined Twitter, we had all hands, uh, engineering all hands. And, and this was the time, if, if you remember, where Twitter was going down all the time. There was this, this uh, famous fail whale that would show up and, and get lifted up. Sorry, you know, our website's down again. And, you know, Lady Gaga tweeted at Justin Bieber. You know, those are scenarios, you know, that takes on the website, right? So we were in this, like, massive scramble to, to, to re-platform into this more scalable um, architecture. Uh, and so we were going through that, and there was a big upgrade we're about to make the week after. And we had a town hall with the founders of Twitter, with, with uh, you know, Ev and Biz. Um, and they shared with us that the next week when we're scheduling this, this big upgrade, it's going to be at the same time as a scheduled protest in Iran against oppression. <clears throat> and could we keep Twitter up so that the people on the ground can get the word out? Uh, and we did that. And, and just the outpouring first of messages saying, hey, you know, we, we're here for, for freedom, for democracy. And then the support around the world, back to Iran, people on the ground saying, hey, we care, we hear you. It was just so so motivating for me and touching to see, wow, this platform that, you know, I think many people in the beginning, oh, just, it's just what your, your, you know, sort of yuppies texting what they, what they had for lunch, right? Really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool for revolution that is needed in, in, in these areas. And so uh, I think to me that felt very exciting. And, um, and then there's some stuff on the technical side where a lot of the work that Twitter was creating was being open source. So they were sharing what they were making and there was that ethos. Uh, and, and when I joined Twitter, we had courses, which is kind of, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna sound very surprising of how do you raise seed funding for your own startup? Right. So a lot of people there were already entrepreneurial to the point where, you know, we were having hackathons, we were having these courses to really show, hey, you know, this is not a place that we're going to keep you caged. Right. Twitter symbol is a bird, which is actually we're, we're here to let the bird thrive and let, let people go free. For folks who have little context or wondering why this is of uh, additional curiosity to many people, we're recording on April 26th. You're going to hear this on May 3rd. But we just found out that one said billionaire is going to buy Twitter and the ramifications on what you view free speech as and sort of what it means for activism, however you define it and whatever points of view you have on that, I think is, is for me, critically important to understand Justin's story because even though on paper, it's like, hey, he was a software engineer at Twitter. Cool. It's a Silicon Valley, you know, blue chip firm. It led to him starting his own company. But I think it's also important the lessons that you learned helping to advocate for people to communicate freely, right? Because particularly in parts of the world where communication is controlled and free speech does not exist. And again, without taking sides on what that means today in America, particularly in, in a post sort of Trump world, it's kind of cool that you had that it wasn't ever absent from your life, this notion of using your platform, using your voice to share stories, to get the messages out there to people who would suffer from that lack of communication. I, I think that's really, really cool. I mean, what other sort of things did you learn or pay attention to or, you know, have realizations about as far as leveraging the technology that you were an expert at building to help voice causes? And again, in hindsight, this makes a whole lot of sense, man. This is awesome. Yeah, well, 
during the time of Twitter, this is like early 2011, 2012, the emerging um, discipline was this thing called growth hacking, which became growth marketing. And so if you remember during the times, you install an app, and this is the negative part of growth hacking, you install an app, it would spam all your friends, hey, come join, like path, right? And you, you're like, what the, you're like, what the hell, right? And that was like growth hacking, get the growth. And, and Facebook actually led that, right? They were able to leverage your connections and your address book and really get that critical mass people to join. Um, but very quickly it became an invasion of privacy, right? Invasion of trust. Uh, and so that's really where growth uh, marketing or growth team came to be. And that's what we built at Twitter and in, 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 in deeper understanding uh, people and then also uh, the, the content we have. Though Twitter was actually quite different from Facebook, where Facebook would ask you for everything or meta. Facebook would ask you for every single information that we have about you. Twitter was very adamant about asking for the bare minimum. So not even your name, not your gender. And, and so when Twitter started down the track of, okay, now we have to make some money and and, and the path is sort of, okay, let's, we have to sell ads or we have to sell targeting. A very basic targeting is whether you're male or female. So because we didn't, we didn't ask, we had this massive machine learning team to figure out based on your name and based on kind of, you know, your tweets, like, hey, this person's male or female. And it was like 60, 70% correct. It was really not that effective. You know, we could have just asked, are you, you know, what's your gender, right? Uh, but that just gives you give an extent of how how much Twitter cared about your privacy, so that you know you cannot be exposed. And as as we saw in the more recent years, um, we did have uh, folks at Twitter who were either compromised or either sort of been been sort of pressured into giving information on, on dissidents. Right, a lot of dissidents um, activists do use Twitter, whether it's to to share messages or communicate with each other, and so the privacy protection is paramount. Um, and, and so to me, like as, as a platform, at least historically, like I felt a lot of trust in Twitter and Twitter is the, the, the main social platform I use. I, I, I tend not to use the other platforms because um, sort of like, you know, one at one level, um, this like freedom to, to, to express and, and and not be afraid of um, kind of the, the, the bigger forces is really great. But then in the wrong hands, right, what does that become, right? Obviously, there's a question of, okay, how, how is Twitter going to be now with new, new ownership? Um, and so, so that gets into sort of um, what are the um, safeguards and who are the owners of the platform, right? Someone like, you know, um, Jack Dorsey or someone like Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, those are different owners and different views of, you know, this data. And so um, I think those are questions we need to ask when we look at the bigger media landscape, who owns our newspapers, who owns our television stations, our entertainment uh, companies, right? And and what are they influenced by? I think it's interesting you bring that up. You know, I, I just was reading something this morning. It's like, you know, the richest man in the world owns the Washington Post. Number two now owns Twitter. Numbers three, four, and five own a combination of Facebook, Google, and all the things that sort of we take for what we would perceive to be the free exchange of information. And not to make a point, but it's just to say like, hey, is it, you know, if, if these five, 10 guys control how we consume information, how does that impact? And particularly, I think in light of our community, how are these narratives painted? Not just when bad things happen to us, but in general, how are stereotypes maintained or how are they perpetuated and confirmed through the stories that we tell in, you know, particularly traditional forms like TV, right? And so if, a, you know, if, if a part of the country only gets their entertainment or media from particular sources, the way that they might view you and me just walking down the street might be very different than somebody who doesn't consume that media, right? And so I think, you know, it is obviously, you know, the, the free flow of information is fantastic. I'm very curious to see what happens to all the stuff that's happening in the world. But, you know, as, as far as the way that we communicate too in sort of our Asian Twitter, Asian Instagram, Asian LinkedIn, we share things that the rest of America perhaps doesn't see. And what we, I think, are able to provide more than the actual content is the context through which we can res resonate and relate to each other, right? Because it's different, right? And so when Atlanta happened, CNN covered it very differently than the Korea Times. 
And I'd rather read the Korea Times stuff because it's my people's language, right? And they were able to get stories that CNN couldn't, right? Because we know our community, right? Like if CNN pulled up, they're not talking, right? Like we're not, we're not being, because the language is different too. And, and there's a little bit of, you know, wanting to protect people. That's really, really amazing context, man. And tell us about Iterable, leaving Twitter or any other startup of that magnitude. I think in hindsight, again, is, is somewhat to be expected. You know, was it a big of a move uh, for you then? Why did you make that decision? And why in that lane of, we'll call it corporate storytelling, uh, mixing storytelling and business together? When I took my first job out of college, I, I had a sense that this will be my first and only job where I'm the employee. <laughs> That's, I just kind of felt that. Um, and so the first years I was there, I, I read through every design document, every thing I could, all the technologies we're building internally and really try to get a sense. I really wanted to learn how, you know, a company at that scale where you had hundreds of millions of users and, you know, they're worth like this, this like Deckercorn, right? $10 billion valuation is, is being built in and, and grown. Uh, so after two years, I, I, I felt that I was sort of reaching um, a peak of my learning and ability to, to, to grow there. I, when I started it, the reporting structure was uh, me, the VP of engineering, the CEO. By the time I left two years later, I was, was like me, manager, senior manager, director, and I was like seven levels deep. Uh, and, and it was sort of really, you know, getting into more corporate structure. Um, um, and I felt that, um, at my, at that age, like when I was sort of working on, on, um, Twitter, I was, I was relatively young, I was 22 years, uh, I was working on Iterable, I was 22 years old and I felt there's not really much I, I had to lose, but really there's a lot I can learn from and really experience. So I almost thought of building a company like paying for um, a, perhaps an expensive vacation or going to like Disney World, right? Like the, the, the funds that you have, you're going to use on experiences that hopefully you enjoy, right? And to me, like the ability to learn how to build a company and all the parts of it beyond technology, it's like that's an amazing experience that, you know, I would, I would in a sense pay for. Um, and so, so I made that decision when when – when I hit the two-year anniversary, and actually my parents later told me that they were very sort of surprised I would leave the company. And mm. kind of, even though, you know, though my father did a company and, you know, we were, you know, they left their home country to come here. Like, you know, the, the sense was like, I think very common for immigrant parents. Like, hey, let's, let's find stability here. You know, it's, it's just us three, you know, we just got here, right? Why not, you know, spend some more years in, in the startup or, or in, in this way and get some more of a, of a nest egg. And I think, I think for me personally, I, I, I'm someone who really follows my, my instincts and follows sort of what uh, I feel um, you know, could, could make a, a bigger impact. And I think at that point, like I just felt like I was going to be another sort of cog in the wheel. Right. And I also sensed just looking around Silicon Valley that there are very few um, Asian American founders and even fewer Asian American CEOs, um, especially of enterprise software companies. And I felt that there was a potential for me to show a different archetype. Uh, as someone who also has the has sort of the the values of of the East, um, because a lot of times when Asians are moving up in in, in America in the West, you are pushed to become more of a, a Western sort of leader type person, more like a West. Western white guy kind of kind of ethos. Um, whereas, you know, if you look at Asia today and throughout history, they're amazing leaders in, in, in Asia as well, right? And, and you know, using some different set of values. And so how do we bring the best of the, the East and the West together? And something that I really wanted to explore um, and, and show through building my own company. And so that led me to building um, Iterable. And then the other part of it, was the genesis was seeing how impactful uh, a growth team was at Twitter. And that was the team I was on for the second year in, in getting the user base going because a lot of people were coming to Twitter but leaving after the first week or so because they weren't really getting you know the best of it. Um, and so we, we spent a lot of time in, in that first week 
two-week process that you can see the best of Twitter. You can follow people, get mutual follows. Um, and so, so that got me to think about, okay, you know, if Twitter can spend all these resources to, to build this and it's effective for them, very few other companies could um, build up this massive engineering team and all these resources. And so how do we provide this as a platform so that, you know, a, a, a typical company can really compete and, and have, have this best technology? And that's what got me to start Iterable and start providing that to many, many businesses. How did you think that the different style of leadership would be received and how and how did it actually? I, I asked this because in, in doing the work that I do through the podcast and others, we, we talk about leadership often and I get frustrated or it's become an epiphany, uh, then leads to frustration that the way that we've been taught what leadership means in this country was not by us and potentially not for us, right? And I think as two East Asian men, we admit a lot of the privileges that we have in existing in a technology or a business world that's still dominated by white men. And so we, you know, we exude a lot of the traits that I think could qualify as traditional leadership. But if we think about, you know, women, uh, more marginalized communities, different gender, sort of what you expect, what you're expected to do and say and how to act to be perceived as a leader was not that playbook wasn't written for everybody. And so I, I wonder how you thought about this going into starting your own thing about how much influence or rewiring of leadership you could have accomplished. And then in the earlier years of Iterable, as you were growing your team, um, was that something, you know, how did it end up uh, measuring itself against the hypothesis in which you entered with? So starting my company, I, I didn't have any personal examples of Asian leaders. Um, the one that I could find um, um, historically was you know, Jerry Yang of Yahoo and um, more, more current one was John Chen and of, of BlackBerry. And so at the time when I was starting, he was the only uh, Asian American uh, CEO that I, I, can, I could see. Um, and I think the perspective I had was that like a typical American leadership style is a, a more aggressive right? You're kind of um, pounding the table and sort of, you know, uh, um, more of a sort of like, I would say, uh, um, militant style is as maybe Howard characterized it. Um, whereas where I was coming from, I think the values that, that I've seen is sort of, it's really more towards um, building consensus and, um, and hearing people out and um, I think more fundamentally, the values of 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 the West and the East are are, are different. Um, and so, in the East, uh, we tend to see the world as a unified whole, you know, mm. as an organism, as a sort of larger and we're part of this larger whole, right? And so, in that sense, like um, it's not it's not you're not healthy because of, you know because your um, your your heart is really good. Or because just because of your lungs, it's really this whole body has to work well to to have a healthy person, right? And so, um, whereas in the West, you, you kind of you tend to see this body as more of like a mechanical beast, right? Kind of like a as a machine, right? That you that you can sort of like scale up, and no wonder you're seen as cogs in the wheel, right? And you see sort of nature as a place where you you sort of extract resources and you divide and conquer. Right, going back to kind of the militant style of leadership, um, whereas really in nature and people, we are at, we are animals. We are part of, you know, um, the world, and really, it's a lot of nurturing has to happen, right? And I think that's you know part of really where um, I think the Eastern style of leadership can come in. Um, I, I think the um, the positives from the Western style is is more sort of directness and ability to, you know, express individual views, right, and be able to synthesize that, right? They're sort of getting into some of the views of, okay, how, you know, having debates and synthesizing it. Uh, and I think that's very valuable. And at the same time, you know, what is the fundamental view of the world, right? If it's more, hey, this is a machine or our company is this machine that we got to operate and crank and crank, 
versus, hey, this is an organism of people with, that can get sick, that can be healthy, that can thrive, right? And, and so, so that's what, so that's kind of where I was coming from. And in navigating the the, the, the company building space, you know, within my own company, I, I definitely had that expression of this organism and, and sort of. You know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm sort of becoming the nervous system of the organism, making sure it's healthy. And you know, different teams are sort of like the limbs and different different body parts and organs of of this body. But when you engage externally with um, other, whether it's like investors or with with other companies, right? Uh, you, you're influenced by kind of how 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 they run, and in a sense, judged by how you know you're being being sort of operated right and so if the view is that you know a company should be run like a machine and here's a certain sort of set of feelings or some structures and that's that's the lens of how you're judged you know it, it may be really hard for you to get funding and that was that was actually the case for for us in, in the early days that our first investors were, were mostly um, um, Asian Americans who gave us a, a chance um, we got very little funding outside of that and I think people just didn't see someone like myself or with, you know, how I'm thinking about a company could succeed in America. That last part, has that changed? Do you think it's gotten better? I know we have friends, you know, like Dave Liu and uh, Goldhouse has announced the fund. How much easier, if it is, in your opinion, for you to have started Iterable today, particularly from a funding and support perspective, than, you know, we, we have heard countless stories, right? Not just, yes, from our Asian American friends, but many people of color, women, being shut up by traditional financing through uh, venture capitalists because whatever, you know, we can, we can blame that on a whole lot of factors, but the, you know, the, the funding disparity is real. I think it's gotten better though. There's still very few funds like gold house ventures or hyphen capital that really focuses on Asian um, founders. Um, and I think if you, if you look at the founder, um, dynamic, you see a lot of Asian founders, but typically in a more of a, a CTO or a non-CEO role, right? And so part of that is I th- like how these conversations happen, right? Really, when you're starting a company, anybody could be CEO in a sense, right? You're sort of like, okay, is this the three of you? Okay, you, who, who's the CEO? Who's this, who's the CTO? You know, who, who's the COO? You're sort of picking and Kind of like if, if there's a white guy, you're typically, okay, it looks like you probably fit the pro- profile. You're going to be like probably the most successful, right? And in, in kind of fitting that mold, right? And so um, we have more examples now of, of uh, Asian American CEOs, right? You're, you know, like Eric Yuan of Zoom and Tony Shu of DoorDash, uh, more and, and, and women as well, right? Coming up like April Co uh, of, of Spring Health. Uh, that we can start pointing to, but but the data is still relatively scarce. Um, I think if you if, if you just look at the disparity of how many Fortune 500 board members or CEOs are Asian American, it, it's very very few, and, and 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 the board members are pretty much all founders of their own company, right? They're all founder CEOs. Like very few are sort of recruited uh, externally. Um, so. Um, it's and this gets into the sort of the bigger kind of DEI space of getting more representation for people of color, right? In in this sort of uh, space where really it's driven by fast growth and you know capital and sort of like um, let's just repeat what works uh, and let's get more money after that, right? Uh, it's not really driven by how do we create more opportunities. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's, it's not mutually exclusive that if we give more people of color opportunities that. Uh, they're going to be, you know, uh, driving uh, profits, but it's more sort of like a shortcut. Hey, you know, given the choice, you, you, most, most, most of these investors who are mostly white men will pick, you know, tried and true formulas. Okay, this guy looks like a Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, or you know, let's let's invest after that, right? Versus someone who have have various backgrounds that you don't really quite understand or or, or talks in, or or gives you a certain energy that you don't know, aren't quite used to. Hundred percent. You know, I, I know we say um, the phrase that we love to say in the community is representation matters, and I agree, but I don't think it's enough, right? Because we we want proper representation, right? And like, sure, the, the, it is a stereotype, right? Like, oh, you're a co-founder, you're an Asian person, you're either the CTO, you're the CFO, like you're never thought of as the leader, right? And and then how many times, perhaps you or other people that work with non-Asians as a team walk into a meeting where you are in fact the boss? And your hand is not the first one t- shaken. 
And it's just almost subconscious at that point. And, and maybe we even accept that. And I think a lot of perhaps our parents' generation or more recent immigrant mindset where we self-identify as not the leader or we're okay with being treated as, you know, we're, we're okay with it, right? Like our parents almost expected racism in this country because they saw themselves as foreigners. And, and now in one generation, we say, screw all that. We deserve to be here and we want to be treated the same. And so I, I think it is really, really fascinating. All your experiences that you have had, both in your childhood, your family, and then all the way through your career. We would love to shift the focus into sort of SWA, you know, the, the movement that you started. How did it get started? How did you get involved? And it is now your what you are known for as your primary thing. Why is this the next chapter for you? Uh, we would love to understand the origin story first of how it came about and how you got involved. Yeah, so, so Stand with Asian Americans, or SWA, we were founded a bit over a year ago, just after the Atlanta spa shootings. Um, at the time, I was co-founder and the CEO of, of Iterable, running this company with hundreds of employees. And, um, and when that happened, I immediately had our team switch all of our marketing um, on, on Twitter, on, on LinkedIn, to recognize this anti-Asian hate incident and, and call for solidarity really across all peoples of color uh, and marginalized groups. Um, what I was disappointed by was the lack of corporate response um, uh, in general. Um, and, you know, whereas the year before with George Floyd, uh, everyone sort of had you know, the black square and, and, and um, responded. But for Asian hate, um, the, the response was pretty lackluster, um, including this is where kind of I'm also holding our, our, our own community accountable, including uh, Asian American founders and CEOs who ran you know, very big companies um, who, 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 who did not respond. And, you know, personally reached out to some of them to say, hey, you know, uh, you're a leader in the Asian American community. It would mean a lot, uh, not only to your own employees, but to the whole Asian American community, if you can, if you can say something. And, um, and then kind of thinking through the bigger um, um, challenge of, hey, why don't we speak up more, right? Um, Part of it is the sense of, uh, hey, we're kind of playing into the model minority, right? Especially as we kind of rise and you're sort of like um, playing, going along with sort of uh, the game that sort of, you know, the sort of people in charge, uh, the white man in charge that has set up for us. Um, the second part of it, even if we want to speak up, and this is like with public speaking, it's kind of a daunting thing, right? You, you don't just get up there. Um, and so we thought about, and this is really where, Dave Liu, one of the co-founders of Stanley Asian Americans, and I, we were just messaging on LinkedIn. It's like, hey, what do we, how do we, you know, get the word out? What do we do about this? Um, and um, we thought, okay, what is like the, the minimum step that we can get people to take on this 10,000, mm -hmm. you know, mile journey of, of, of activism and speaking up? And we thought, okay, let's, let's write this letter that's like, you know, a bit visceral that really calls it out. You know, we call out the... The rhetoric of the last president of cold flu and China virus. We we call for recognition that you know this this anti-Asian racism is happening. Call for support of Asian ERGs, for fair representation, and for providing funding to the Asian American nonprofits. Uh, and so, so we wrote that letter and we started this really crazy dash to get. To, um, um, signatories on board, Asian American leaders on board, because we felt like we, and this is right after the land issues. We felt we had a moment, right, to respond. If we miss that moment, you know, it's not going to resonate. And so, in ten days after the latest spot shootings, we collected a thousand signatures from Asian American leaders, including the the CEOs of, of Zoom and DoorDash, and the founders of Peloton, YouTube, Yahoo, and many more. Um, got that onto um, Wall Street Journal. We, we pay for a full page ad um, and and show that, hey, you know, Asian Americans are, are a core part of this country and making what uh, our, our lives are depend on. And we are uniting to speak up, to fight back, right, to, to make sure that we truly belong in this country. Um, uh, and so in, in 10 days, we we got a website together. We got a Slack channel. We got you know, dozens and dozens of amazing volunteers who, who, who spent endless uh, amounts of uh, nights and 
and days building this out. Um, and, you know, we went from one page. Now we're, we're, we're two chapters. We have a chapter in San Francisco and chapter in New York. Uh, but I, I really felt deeply that like, this was the moment that, you know, leading up to Atlanta spot shootings, we, we had um, incidents like uh, 84-year-old Thai grandpa, Vishal Ratanapakti, who was pushed and killed. Uh, and other very vicious incidents of, you know, you remember that grandma being punched in the face and, uh, you know, Rong Shin Liao, another 84-year-old grandpa being 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 kicked. And um, and that wasn't enough to get people riled up. But then, hey, you know, now we have eight people killed, six were Asian women. Like, if that's not enough to get, get people awakened and talking about this and recognizing it, what is, right? And this is really where we had to really push. And so we're, for, we're, we're fortunate that, that, that the Asian American community uh, came together for that effort. And now, you know, the next phase is really, okay, how do we build this momentum and continue this movement? I, I became an outside observer, then a supporter, then friends, and now we're partners in this. The thing that I appreciate the most, and, and shout out to uh, particularly Wendy Wen and, and Brian Pang, who work so tirelessly in addition to their day jobs. And because I know the emails and texts always come in late at night and shout out to doing all the work and not just them, but many of the folks behind the scenes is your intent and your strategy and just focus on part of the community, both Asian American and broadly American that wasn't necessarily being spoken to about this, right? So the activist community and the allies were always there, right? The politicians sort of had to get involved from a pressure perspective, the the, the faith-based community across all religions, they always get involved, but the business people rarely did because, yeah, we, we fall victim to the modern minority myth. We don't rock the boat enough. We don't get loud enough. But part of it was that if it doesn't impact shareholder value or the bottom line or replace that with any other like financial metric, it, it, it was hard for companies to take a quote unquote political stance. And here we are saying this isn't political. People are dying. Your employees are scared. They're physically scared to come to work. They're emotionally traumatized from having to watch these videos. And it does impact performance. And therefore, we can clearly state for you that these have financial implications. But what I thought was really cool, especially coming from the business background myself, was if we can get folks with actual financial influence over people's lives, over policy as well, that it was going to be an impactful thing. And, and it has. And, and I also want to take the moment to shout your team out in particular, because when big catastrophic things happen in communities, a lot of things happen. People get excited and they create, you know, movements, Instagram accounts, events. And it's not that they don't care in the long run, but it is really hard to sustain stuff. It is really hard to build a team and infrastructure, um, financial support, which is necessary to make sure that there's longevity in the fight because we're not going to solve anti-Asian hate or racism through a four-hour clubhouse call. We're not going to solve any of it by having a really wonderful, you know, even through this, we're going to share great conversations, but we're moving the needle just a little bit, not solving anything. So that fight and that long-run mindset is necessary. And y'all have partnered up with some great people, organizations, brought some people on that um, have the heart to go at this in the long run. And, and so what does that long run look like for you, Justin, um, as a leader of Stand With Asian Americans? What can we do to activate our audience and help spread the message? Because the initial message was grounded in the business leader community, you know, the uh, through ERGs, through Asian Leader Alliance, Leaders Alliance. What is the long-term success and mission of SWAT from your vision? It's interesting, uh, kind of what we did when we launched SWA with the letter and, and getting back to that, that beginning story a little bit. Uh, initially, we were it was sort of this like immediate post where people were signing up. And this was sort of the maybe the weekend that we were sort of launching it. Um, I ran into a friend of mine, a Winnie to Win. We were just hanging out in the park and um, I was reading a book and she was there with 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 her family and, and she said, hey, Justin. And. I haven't seen her in many months, and and Wendy co-founded um, this um, um, anti-voter suppression uh, um, nonprofit before, and that's how we got connected. And she was using Iterable to to actually get people to to know how to vote by mail. Um, and I, I talked to talked to her for a bit. I was like, hey, you know, we're thinking of doing something for Atlanta. 
she's like, I'm down to help and got in. And so, um, on, on the Sunday we, we had the zoom about, about 10 people and, and, and Wendy is also a marketer. So her, you know, she's into, you know, really how to, how to challenge the status quo. And if you look at her story, you know, she comes from a family uh, of, uh, uh, activists and, 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 and organizers. Um, and she really felt that, Hey, we have to make, make a big statement into the mainstream, right? It's not enough that it just circles within our community, like really had to get it out there. And that's what, that's where the idea came from to go, Hey, let's put this at the wall street journal, even though there were many hurdles, like we didn't, we didn't have the funds to go to wall street journal. We don't know anybody at the time who worked there and how do we, how do we do that? Right. But really wanted to get this letter into the homes of the people who were, in a sense, controlling the world and through the financial system or the funding to see this. Hey, like this is an issue, and we are rising up to to challenge that, right? And and you know we're not just going to stay silent as as our people are being killed. Certainly not. Um, and so in that sense, like what we're trying to build is is a mainstream popular movement. Um, you know, more recently this year, we were, we started also planning rallies and we were, we were the, the national, um, organizer for, uh, Asian justice rally for the first anniversary of the 84 year old Thai grandpa, Vichurthana Pakti, his passing. Um, and then most recently we planned, um, uh, and that, that was six cities. And most recently we planned an 11 city event called break the silence justice for Asian women on the one year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings. Um, and how that came to be that like when we started Sam Asian Americans, you know, we're coming from the business world. Um, pretty much none of us have done any kind of on, on the, on the ground organizing. Um, what, where that kind of materialized was we were called into, Hey, we, we need help to organize. Um, and there were a lot of great organizers in 2021 who, really put their lives on the line and, and several of them got into debt to go and, you know, plan all these events uh, and rallies, but it was not sustainable. They were not being paid uh, and they were burnt out, you know? And, and so, so, so the people were, were sort of, who were doing it uh, are, are sort of um, recovering and there was nobody left. Uh, and that's where we got called in. I was called in to plan, plan rally and I'd never done it before, but kind of with my entrepreneurial mindset, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll learn it and do whatever it takes. And that just goes to show the lack of, lack of infrastructure, the lack of sort of shared knowledge, because fundamentally we are coming up against organizations, institutions that have been around for decades or hundreds of years. That's well-resourced, that has professionals, right? That are trained, that learn and improve, right? We need so we need that for our own community, uh, and there are really many great organizations across the country. That some some who were founded recently, some who were around for here for for decades, um, that um, are doing amazing work. But but now, really, how do we create leverage, or how do we have the best technologies to fight back? So we're not, you know, using our fists and and sticks and going up against people with tanks, right? And that's even if we're super passionate, like it, we're not going to we're not going to succeed, but. I think Asian Americans, like we're great at using technology, right? And, you know, some of the early spaces like, you know, YouTube or, or, you know, social media, like TikTok, Instagram, uh, in the Web3 space, and certainly in, in um, uh, sort of startup technology, like, you know, we really thrive in, in those areas and we know how to, how to have technology give us a lot more um, uh, leverage. And so, uh, and, and that's technology, not only in the kind of technical sense, but also sort of in a kind of organizational or a, a philosophical sense that really can get us uh, more, more aligned and more effective. And so that's really kind of where SWA is um, coming to place. And, and we spent the past year really getting to know a lot of the, the nonprofits and organizers in the space, and, and there's so much more work to do. Uh, and 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 really, what we're 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 moving towards is how do we unite um, the Asian Americans across the country, and that's really what got us this year to go from planning a six-city rally to the eleven-city event, right? And and we're getting into okay, now how do we really connect the whole country? What can the average person do? Because I think where we feel powerless is when we feel that we don't have enough influence in organizations, right? And so people might look at you and go, man, you're a founder. You got a lot of influential friends. You put money together to buy out a Wall Street Journal ad. 
your, you know, um, our role, our collective Rolodex is pretty deep and, you know, and we can get to people in the community who can also help us amplify, you know, people who listen to the podcast and say, Hey, you have a platform to get stories out. And, and we are, are not fully cognizant of the privileges that we have. It is our job to help get the story out there as wide as possible. But for somebody who might feel like their voice is not being heard, particularly in some of these organizations that you and I have alluded to earlier, where Asian American voices are not being prioritized, that we are not hurting enough, that we continue to get gaslit when we bring up, hey, can we, should we do something in remembrance of an event or a murder, or just providing space for Asian employees to talk? How are you feeling? What can they do? How can they support the movement that SWA has carried the torch on? How can they continue so that even though mainstream media has largely significantly decreased the coverage of the attacks, we know that's not true. We hear about it constantly from amazing media friends like Stefan and Dion and uh, Benny at NextShark. We know that this still exists and our safety is still not what we want it to be. And I also want to say that we're not just fighting for justice or safety physically. We want to exist and thrive in this country without fearing of any sort of discrimination, racism, just to thrive equally. And so this movement isn't going to be so easily solved. But how does the average person contribute to the mission? Yeah, and this this is a nice segue into really the format of the the 10 series of, of talks that Jerry's um, been very gracious to work with us on setting up. Um, it's, it's really a multifaceted um, problem and it's not, it's not just let's figure out policies or let's get more funding, right? We need to take care of our mental health. We need to make sure that we have accurate data reporting on, uh, uh, on our community. We need to make sure our history is being taught, we need to make sure our nonprofits are supported that there's the representation of our issues in the government, in, in the news, in the media, uh, in the business world, entertainment, digital media. And so those are areas that really, um, and more that really uh, we need to be uh, a core part of. And so if you are, you know, in any of these spheres, um, you really the power in, 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 our, in America are in these businesses and these institutions, right? And so really, you know, like the rallies on the ground stuff, like that creates attention, that creates a bit of momentum. Um, but the change has to come, you know, through these organizations and through the kind of the democratic process that um, really run our world. And so, you know, the people that are really speaking to, if you're listening to this podcast, I would say most likely you're not sort of a sort of person living in Chinatown, living in SRO, right? You're, you're probably, you know, in an okay state, you're not living in poverty. Uh, and so really what we're speaking to are people, you know, who have resources, have some time, right, are, are in the middle class, right, who who care about these issues. You're not at the point where you're, you know, so wealthy, you're like living in kind of a different world, right? But you're living in these, these, these places where actually you want to do something. And so what we're really trying to organize in a sense is creating this larger, Asian American union where we can really uh, align on issues. And, you know, a, a beautiful thing that's coming up is a lot of Asian ERGs are being formed. Uh, and, and Brian Peng, one of the leaders of the Asian Leaders Alliance, which is a, a coalition of 400 Asian ERGs representing hundreds of thousands of Asian American employees, you know, a lot of these ERGs were formed in the past year or two, right? And some of them from really big companies with a lot of Asian uh, employees. Because, it, you know, they didn't feel that they even deserved an ERG. Hey, you know, we're sort of like, you know, we make up such a big percentage, you know, of some of these companies. But if you actually look at kind of the, the promotion levels, we're the least likely to be promoted. So that translates into more of the sophisticated type of, of violence discrimination, right? And so getting into specific is really organizing whether it's your own company through an Asian ERG or through your local community. And so... Uh, a lot of the organizers we're working with, even on the ground, were first-time organizers, right? And we would put on these events, and we thought no one was going to come, right? We thought, hey, we'll we'll do this all. And, and New York had a great story when they when they did the event. Um, it was it was the day after this blizzard in New York is in January, and well, it's going it's super cold, and we just had a blizzard, and 
no one knows who we are. Like no one's going to come, but they had 150 people show up and another hundred stayed for this March um, down, down to Chinatown. It was amazing to show people, you know, have people to come. Right. And so like, whether you are organizing these events or you're attending these events, whether it's on the streets or in the office, um, you know, th- that matters. Right. And because you're able to influence people around you, you're able to, you know, get, get more and more of your friends to build a critical mass. And so, um, you know, it's in a sense, like what we're trying to build is, is um, enough people where we can, you know, be, be sort of, you know, I think the analogy that we, we use sort of like in, Amer- in the West is sort of the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? We need to first build the wheel that we can really start like, you know, making the noise out of. And I think of the different, different sort of, you know, the, the areas like government and nonprofit and mental health, like those are sort of the spokes of the wheel that we need to build, right? And then we need to start like, you know, using this this wheel to actually get get our our, our movement across and our message across, right? And so so everyone matters in this movement. It's not it's not it's not gonna be possible if it's just a couple of us talking on on podcasts or on Twitter. It's that's not gonna, you know, make 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 really uh, major difference, but it's really, we need everybody, as many people as we can, you know, be educated on these issues and in your own way, like at, at, in the workplace, on the streets, when you hear something, when you're feeling discriminated, you know, just in your small way, fighting back. And if, if, you, and if you are more severely discriminated, you know, getting down the track of, okay, how do I either tell my story or, you know, going down the path of like reporting to HR or taking legal action. This is really where Stanley Asian Americans can help, and so if you are facing workplace discrimination, all the forms of discrimination, um, let us know. Um, send us an email, reach out to us, and we we would like to help. And and so if if you're uh, listening to us uh, in the early part of May, we're going to be doing these episodes every Tuesday for the next nine weeks, ten including this one. We're going to be hearing from leaders across a different a variety of disciplines, from mental health, from who collects the data on our community? Uh, what are the historical and sort of legal ramifications and consequences of what we're doing? Nonprofits, government, media, business, entertainment, how we see ourselves. And so we're putting together a list of folks that we think we're providing you, not just you know one side of how our community feels, but also trying to represent what is probably a, an impossible task of representing the diversity of the voices that exist within our community. And so we invite you to continue to listen we're going to be having some pretty cool friends stop by and, and to share with us. And, and again, I know we've talked a lot about big dreams and moving the needle and a lot of stuff. I, I do want to remind folks that you do what you can within your control. Everything helps. Saying something, say, hey, that's not cool in a meeting or even amongst friends, that is either a microaggression or a racist statement, maybe towards us, but to anybody else, that helps. Checking in with somebody to see how they're doing, that helps. Voting helps making phone calls or advocating for something helps. This fight for justice and and for our humanity across the board isn't going to be won overnight, nor is it going to be won by a group of people whose job it is to do this. We need all hands on deck. And so if you're listening to the sound of our voice, listening to this, we're grateful for. Going to work the next day or just checking in on a friend, reading a book that you maybe have not picked up yet to learn a little bit more about our history, because this isn't new. You know, if you're able to contributing to causes like SWA and other organizations who are doing the work on the ground or, you know, to forming relationships and coalitions to do greater work at a more national level, do what we can. And and so uh, I, I am grateful for you coming on to share your story, Justin. I think people have seen the work of Stand With Asian Americans online and in person. It is a joy and an honor to work with you on these next episodes here with us. And really, I think I said this to you before, but I think it's it, it takes somebody who has the perspective that you have had and the experiences that you have had to do something like this, because often we fall into our own trap of what we're supposed to do with our lives from a career standpoint, that people who work at these companies, who go to certain schools, who found big companies, don't have the time or the opportunity to lead community movements. And so... You know, we need new perspective, fresh ideas. And so thanks to you. And, and again, thanks to the team behind, to Wendy, uh, to Diana, to Brian, to everybody on the SWAT team that has played and continue to play a role in making this and the other initiatives happen. Thank you. Let's celebrate all of us. 
in, in this APAM season. I know that every time we talk about our community, particularly the last two years, it's always been heavy. It's often been heavy. Uh, morning lives and thinking about how we can safely exist in this world. But there's a hell of a lot to celebrate. And so let's do that. Go go buy some Asian food today. Go support your local Asian-owned business. And uh, Justin, thanks again for stopping by. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for creating the platform and creating space. Thanks again to Justin for making time for this conversation and also for partnering with us as we share some amazing Asian-American stories uh, for the next 10 Tuesdays and really helping us understand what we can do to um, perhaps make the best of what this, what has happened to our community uh, so that we can be educated, that we can be empowered uh, to do what is right, whether it is uh, standing up for ourselves in the workplace, whether it is going to the voting booth, uh, understanding our history and the context with which we exist and what we can do and what we must do going forward. And so to learn more about the work that Stand With Asian American is doing, head to the website standwithasianamericans.com or anywhere on social media at Stand With Asian Americans. We will put all the links that you can find Justin at. Uh, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find him on Twitter and other places. And so again, a big shout out and a thank you to our friends at Stand With Asian Americans for allowing us to have this conversation and for the partnership that we'll be uh, doing together for the next 10 weeks. Big thanks to Justin. And as we always do, I wish you health, safety, and especially happiness as we continue celebrating all the things that make us amazing and wonderful during APAM. I've been your host, Jerry Wan of Dears and Americans. Thanks for listening.